Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Catholic Connect podcast on another beautiful day our Lord has made for us. And I want to say hi to everybody that listens across our great country of Canada, the United States, Europe, anywhere you listen to the Catholic Connect podcast. What a great universal church we belong to. Thanks for all the the great messages and reaching out to me. Um, This podcast has been such a blessing. I have met so many people from around the world. It's amazing. So thanks for creating this little community here with the podcast. And I look forward to sharing the conversation I had with John Gravino, uh, just an outstanding author, a blogger. He's got a lot of great things to say. Some um, inconvenient truths maybe is maybe the best way to put it. We talk about where did the new springtime of the church go, the one that St. John Paul II talked about, and uh, where are we at in our church today, and uh, what can we do to stand up to the bad stuff in our church. There's a lot of... uh, (laughs) There's a lot of garbage and gunk that we need to deal with in our church, and we need the grace to persevere, to expose heresy and vice, and to bring our church and bring the world to a relationship with Jesus Christ on the cross and live a life of virtue. I do want to start with a a quick quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church as I record this. An amazing movement has started uh, right here in Canada called the Freedom Convoy. 99% of it is so good, so virtuous. Uh, We have a bunch of truckers uh, representing so many Canadians that have been unjustly uh, treated and have uh, lost their employment, their jobs, due to these unjust mandates. And uh, it's been so encouraging to see that this movement has not only um, just sparked a a type of a unity across Canada that I never would have ever expected, even just a few weeks ago, to now to the point where people from all over the world, they had a story that I believe it was uh, Amazon that sold out of Canadian flags because so many people were ordering the Maple Leaf, uh, proud of what Canadian truckers and uh, Canadian liberty freedom fighters have done for not only for Canada, but also for the world to stand up to tyranny, to stand up against mandates. The smaller the government, the bigger the citizen. These are bedrock Catholic principles. And uh, whether they know it or not, these protesters and truckers are doing the Catholic thing. And that is fighting for liberty and for freedom for all. I wanted to read this quick uh, passage from the Catechism of the Catholic Church to remind people we have to be careful what we hear in the media. When we see detraction, lies, bearing false witness against our neighbor, This is a mortal sin. It's against the sins of the Ten Commandments. We need to be fair in how we treat people that are poor now, that have lost everything. And I want to read this to you from 2479, reference number. Detraction and calumny destroy the reputation and honor of one's neighbor. Honor is the social witness given to human dignity, and everyone enjoys a natural right to the honor of his name and reputation and to respect. Thus, detraction and calumny offend against the virtues of justice and charity. End quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, reference 2479. So similar to the rest of the world, the Catholic Church is coming up to a crossroads as well in how we approach not only the outreach inside of our own church, but also to the outside world. And we need to make sure we get this one right. And we got to make sure that us Catholics, we have a sacramental life that we're living, a life in a state of grace, John Gravino. So very excited to have him join us here on the podcast to share his insights with where we stand in the church and uh, how we've got to where we're at. And uh, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of questions that are remaining unanswered. But uh, hey, let's all pray for each other. There's a lot of pressure right from the Pope all the way down to lay people like us, who for most people that are listening to this podcast. So John Gravino is our guest. We're talking about some inconvenient truths, some things that aren't necessarily the most fun to talk about, but we need to expose them. So here's John. We'll see you on the other side, my friends. Well, praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. John Gravino is a commentator, blogger, and author of two great books called The Immoral Landscape of the New Atheism and Confronting the Pope of Suspicion. And I invite our listeners to check out his great insights and commentary at his website, newwalden.org. John, welcome to the Great White North and the Catholic Connect podcast. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, I had to chuckle a little bit as we were uh, making some arrangements to chat. You said that you were getting some work done in your house construction, and I didn't know where you lived before, but you said that uh, there were some delays because of snow. So 
uh, here in Alberta and Canada, we could totally relate with, uh, the delays due to snow, but hopefully you got through that and sunny days are, uh, are happening down in North Carolina for you. Yes. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. We, I mean, we, we get uh, a little bit of snow every winter, but not, uh, this winter we've so far, we've had three straight weekends of it. And so that's, that's pretty unusual for us. No kidding. Yeah. It's uh, I'd, I'd show you a picture of what it looks like outside, but that would probably make you feel pretty cold and put an extra sweater on. So uh, I won't do that. But if you ever, one of these days when these crazy restrictions are over, John, you got an open invitation to come visit us. Just come between June and August. If you could, if you uh, <laughs> want to see some good weather up here. Well, John, I, I'm really glad that we tracked each other down here. Uh, blessed to have you on the, the program and uh, yeah, you've got a couple of great books. You got a great blog. Um, it's a, like I said, some great insights there. How did your journey of faith begin and uh, kind of take you to, to getting into this world of blogging and being an author? Well, um, like we were uh, talking before uh, we started recording, um, it's my, my story is similar to yours. Uh, in a lot of ways, um, I don't really consider myself to be a professional writer or anything like that. That I was actually a school teacher before I started, um, you know, doing this. But um, I was concerned about the direction that uh, the Catholic Church was going. I was concerned about the direction the world was going as well. Um, about 21 years ago, I had a conversion. I was um, a cradle Catholic, but um, I would say in my uh Late teen years, I kind of moved away a little bit from the Catholic Church. But uh, after I got married in my early 30s, I, uh, I found my way back to the faith and started uh, taking it very seriously and uh, became very, very uh, uh, intensely involved in the faith, uh, attending Mass daily and making sure that I was receiving the sacraments. Uh, you know, before my reversion to the faith uh you know i hadn't it had been years since i had gone to confession right so that started becoming a you know i started going back to confession uh daily mass and everything like that and so everything was going great this was actually it was very good for my marriage um and for our family life as we were beginning our family um but then you know quickly things started heading south in the church. I, so my conversion was really 2000. By the beginning of 2002, we had the pre-scandal, right? That broke uh, in a big way on the front pages of American newspapers. Uh, with The Boston Globe really was one of the big places where that got started. And um, so the Catholic Church gets hit with this huge black eye uh, only a year or so, I'm, I'm into my conversion. I'm feeling good about the Catholic faith and everything like that. I love John Paul II. He's the Pope at the time. I'm watching Mother Angelica on EWTN at this point, And whammo, we get hit uh, with this uh, scandal. Well, I felt like the, the church was in great hands with uh, Pope John Paul II. I loved Mother Angelica, and I thought everything was going great. So I really didn't worry about it. Well, it shocked me how many years this scandal dragged on and on and on. And, um, you know, really, John Paul II passes away, and we're still, we're still reeling from this terrible, terrible scandal. It shocked me. And the, the rise of the new atheists also shocked me. Um, it was, I think, Scott, uh, um, no, no, um, What's the guy's name? His name escapes me. The, one of the, the, one of the new atheist uh, yeah, fellows? The first guy. Was it uh, Harris? That's it. Sam Harris. Yeah, Sam you Harris. Know, there I, you go. Yeah. Yes, I should have I should have remembered that, but I I guess I try to block I try to block the names. You know, his first book on the new atheism wasn't published until 2004. So hmm. so John Paul II is on his deathbed, right? And what we see is we see the rise of this new uh, militant uh, secular movement that's very hostile to Christianity. So it seems, you know, the way I see it, as, as the Catholic Church weakened, right, with the 
you know, the, um, the death and the passing of this great leader in John Paul II, a great charismatic leader, a great intellectual leader as well, uh, you see the rise of the new atheists uh, with Sam Harris, his first book in 2004. And then that's quickly followed um, by Richard Dawkins. And I think Daniel Dennett uh, followed that. And then finally, Christopher Hitchens. Mm -hmm. uh, his book was, came out in about 2007. So I think what shocked me was we, we, we get hit with this terrible scandal. John Paul II passes away. And then we see the rise of the new atheists who are selling books like hotcakes. Really, they're, they're dominating the bestseller list and so forth. And I thought that we would have a, a more robust response. And I was kind of shocked at how we didn't. And, um, you know, there were, there were a number of books that were written and, and some of them were quite good, but they never caught fire. You know, nothing, you know, they didn't catch fire. So I thought I would have a go at it. And I'm going to tell you right now that one of the weaknesses I saw in the Catholic response was the, was the following. Um, with regard, the new atheists, the biggest, or this, at least the strongest argument that they leveled at the Catholic Church was the priest scandal itself, okay? But when I looked at the books that, from Catholics that were uh, responding to the new atheists, um, what I failed to see was uh, uh, they tended to avoid the subject of the priest scandal. So what seemed to me to be the strongest argument of the new atheists, at least against the Catholic Church, and the thing that was raging uh, on the front pages of the newspapers for years was the Catholic priest scandal, but which the new atheists were using against us, okay? But those, um, the Catholic authors that were responding to the new atheists were sweeping the issue under the rug. They were ignoring it. So I just felt that it was necessary to write a response to the new atheists that took the bull by the horns and addressed the, the Catholic priest scandal up front. So I was born in 1981, John. So Pope John okay. Paul II had already been a few years into his, his tenure as, as Pope. Yeah. And then, you know, when he eventually passed away in 05, I was already 24 years old. I mean, to see a, a conclave to me was... Uh, it was so foreign and it seemed so strange, you know, somebody that spent that much time in their life only had one Pope. And, That's right. um, but you know, that relationship and, and I, you know, cause I was in my faith you know, at a young age, thank, uh, thank the Lord for great parents that taught me to be engaged in my faith at a young age, but I knew exactly who Cardinal Ratzinger was. So when I, when I saw him come forth and to become the new Pope, even though I was, I was, I was very sad that St. John Paul II died, Pope John Paul, you know, he had a, great life and a great example at the end of suffering. Um, but, uh, you know, when he passed away, he still got the, the impression that, uh, you know, with Pope Benedict coming on, that we're still, we're still okay. This new springtime in the church that Pope John Paul II would talk about was still, you know, the, the, the train was still rolling in the right direction. Right. Um, yes. so maybe on that point, I guess the new springtime of the church that Pope John Paul II became really so, so famous for, so well known for where, where did the, Where'd the train go off the rails, I guess, John, a little bit? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, completely. I, I think what happened was I, there was a great, I thought there was, there was great potential. John Paul II, there was a springtime. There was, uh, you know, down here in the United States, we, we had EWTN, which was a great influence. I think it started in 1981 also. Uh, the, I, was that the year you said the year you were born, right? I was already in high school at that point. Yep. But um, so, you know, there was a springtime, but I think it was cut short. Um, frankly, it was cut short by the pre-scandal, which broke in 2002, and then quickly followed by the death of John Paul II. And I, I agree with you. You know, we still had, you know, EWTN was still going strong. We had the election of Pope Benedict, who was also you know, in the same, uh, out of, in the same mold as John Paul II, right? Maybe he wasn't as charismatic, uh, but, um, and maybe he was not, I mean, I think people could argue that Benedict wasn't as fit for that leadership role because he tended to be 
maybe more academic and maybe he wasn't even as comfortable in that in that role that he seemed he what he liked to do is he liked to write books and you know and maybe being on the world stage was not wh how where he felt his you know in his element so to speak so i i would say that what happened was the springtime thaw was very brief and because of the death of john paul ii because of the pre-scandal that just would not go away right um and because of the rise of the new atheists who were wildly wildly popular and still they are still incredibly influential i mean if you look at sam harris's Absolutely. podcast you know this guy has hundreds of thousands of followers um you know he's just they hang on his every word so so i would say these things sort of came together and they worked to um uh I would say derail the Catholic Church, and then I would say, really, uh, I don't want to say the nail in the coffin because that's that's too cynical. But but I have to say, uh, the election of Pope Francis uh, has been, and I I agree with you. I pray for the Pope, and we need to pray for the Pope. But uh, I can only. Uh, I have to speak the truth as I see it. And I do believe that Pope Francis has, is leading the church in the wrong direction. And uh, his behavior is, has been reckless and, and worse. It's worse than that. It is, um, and we can get into it if you want, but it is frankly evil. Hmm. Um, you, remember, anyway. you remember when Pope Benedict, when he became the Pope, and this is something that uh, we had, uh, I'm sure maybe some of you are familiar with this, uh, Charles Coulomb, who's been a great friend of our podcast and with our listeners, but he said, you know, the one thing that stuck with him all the time was when he said, pray for me so I do not flee for the fear of the wolves. And yeah. I know Charles, but, and, I, and I couldn't agree more with him when he said that. That always stuck with me. And then that day, that you know, fateful day, really, in 2013. I guess it was February. Just, just now, I think is the around the anniversary. Right? It was February 28th, I believe, was the last day when he exited the. Um, I left the, yeah. the the chair was empty in 2013. Mm -hmm. um, that was a real shocking day for me, um, yeah. and especially when the you know the the mainstream media gets on board, and that you know outside of EWTN, there's really not a lot of at that time was not a lot of faithful. <laughs> other publications right. or news sources you could get to. So there's a lot of information flying your way. So you kind of, you know, rolled with the punches. There's a, there's a conclave. And I mentioned earlier with Pope John Paul II, you have a, for myself, you have a, a Pope that's, uh, you know, been in the seat for, you know, basically two and a half decades. Then you have yeah. a conclave, but I've only seen, <laughs> I've only seen one papal funeral in my 40 years of life. I've seen two conclaves and, uh, you know, it, it just seems so strange to be three popes, you know? Um, so yeah. then we get to, to 2013. I, uh, but I, I still want to talk about that, or at least keep that, uh, the priest scandal in, uh, that came out of Boston, of course, in 2002, I think we still need to, to focus on that because like you said, where the new atheists were coming from, John yeah. was, um, attacking. And I think it was an attack on the celibacy of the church or the, the, the priesthood in the church. Yes. When you attack the celibacy of the priesthood, just like our, our sacraments are so intertwined. And I think it's important for our, our, we have a lot of great Protestant listeners too, is that, you know, the, um, uh, you attack the celibacy of the priesthood, you attack marriage as well. Don't you, you attack the, the, the match, the, the sacrament of matrimony between a man and a woman. Um, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you've got a lot of these voices saying, you know, um, denouncing celibacy, which is, which is a gift to our church. It's a gift to the priesthood into the religious life. Do you, do you kind of see those connections there, John? Well, the attack on celibacy was definitely connected to the, uh, the sexual abuse scandal because that was the argument that the secular media and the new atheists dragged out against the Catholic church. It was, they, you know, what they would say was, look at how backward this church is. They rely on all these, they've got all these old superstitions and they have all of these um, outdated ideas um, uh, regarding human sexuality that are just so awful and so harmful that, you know, 
it look what that it drove these priests um, to to commit these horrible horrible uh, crimes. Well, so that was the narrative, right? It was an attack on celibacy because they were using uh, the scandal to say that that celibacy caused this horrible problem. After digging a little bit and doing a little bit of research, what I found was nothing could be further from the truth because during the decades when the sexual abuse was happening, celibacy was at an all-time low in Catholic seminaries. And the reason why is because theologians were drinking in uh, the pop psychology of the day. Um, Sigmund Freud, and the humanistic psychology of Carl Rogers, um, which says, I'm okay, you're okay, my feelings are okay, I've got to listen to my feelings, and it's bad to bottle up my, my personal desires because it's, you know, it's gonna make me neurotic if I do something like that. So that's what was actually being taught in seminary, not celibacy. And as a matter of fact, during the, the, the late 60s and 70s, celibacy was actually being uh, thrown out. They were actually, so theologians were discouraging priests from practicing celibacy because they were actually teaching, they were teaching that it was psychologically harmful for priests to practice celibacy. So, so the fact is when you actually take a look at the situation in seminaries, you see that the sexual abuse scandal happened at a time when uh, seminaries w had discarded uh, the practice of celibacy and they were actually encouraging priests to be sexually active. So it turns out that the sexual abuse scandal is not the fruit of celibacy, but it was the fruit of abandoning celibacy. It was the fruit yes. of priests chasing after their sexual desires. That's what That's you actually see. Practicing that discipline too, right? Right, John? So there... I th and I think it's important too for, for uh, our Catholic listeners particularly, because I think there is another narrative out there that says, and I'm not, this isn't meant to, to downplay uh, pedophilia. And we do know that there has been some, there's been some serious uh, crimes in the church involving pedophilia. However, yeah. if we look at the numbers, John, and I'm sure you've probably done this more than I have, we noticed that the scandal was primarily among post-pubescent boys. There is a difference That's in ages. And now we're starting to talk about something that I think is uh, getting close to uh, what we're seeing here in the last couple of years. And that is the issue with homosexuality in our church, especially amongst right. the clergy, certainly not all, but, uh, and what some people don't know, and John, maybe you can confirm this too, but uh, active homosexuals, you are not actually allowed in the seminary. If you're an active homosexual, that has been a, that's been a practice in the church for, for centuries. Is it not? Well, uh, that's a good question. I can, I can tell you that um, if you read um, a book by Michael Rose called Goodbye Good Men, what you will discover is that quite the uh, contrary is the case. That is, um, there were lots of active homosexuals in seminaries uh, in the late 60s and 70s and, and into the 80s, uh, even into the 90s. Uh, has it changed very much? I honestly doubt it. Um, and um, if you're hetero, in fact, reading the Michael Rose book, what you discover is that uh, seminarians who were heterosexual were really sort of, uh, you know, they were, in a difficult situation. They were in a lot of ways, um, second-class citizens, uh, the, the gay seminarians uh, formed an elite um, in these seminaries. They were favored by the faculty, which also had uh, many uh, um, homosexual uh, members. Uh, there was a lot of social interaction between gay faculty members, uh, gay, priests and the seminarians. And um, there is um, 
a sociologist and a priest by the name of Dr. Paul Solons, who used to teach at Catholic University of America. Uh, and he did a study uh, about uh, these um, homosexual subcultures and seminaries. And what he found was that uh, they, uh, there was a significant increase in these gay subcultures in seminaries in the 70s and 80s at the same time that the sexual abuse scandal was also peaking. So um, as he found a very significant correlation between the rise of gay subcultures in seminary and the increase of sexual abuse uh, among priests. And he, you know, definitely suggesting that there's a causality there, uh, which was the conclusion that he draw, drew in his study. That's a relatively recent study, by the way, because uh, what prompted it was the reemergence. See, the, the scandal reemerged. It, it's true that it broke uh, in 2002 in the Boston Globe, but it reemerged with Cardinal Ted McCarrick when those revelations came out back in 2018. The summer of 2018 sort of wow. revived the whole thing once again. Mm -hmm. And so that's when Dr. Sullins decided um, that he wanted to take a close look at that. So, so what, I, what I'm saying is, as a matter of fact, there, there has been in the past several decades of the, um, in the going back to the second half of the 20th century, uh, a very significant increase of homosexuals in the priesthood that actually took over the priesthood. They took over the seminaries um, and um, they were teaching a theology that was very pro-LGBT and a pro-sexual liberation and also actively persecuting people that didn't go along with that program. And that Michael Rose documents that very well in his book. A lot of these guys were thrown out. Anyone that tried to adhere to Orthodox uh, Catholicism uh, had a very difficult road. And they were, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, they were forced out of seminary. Um, now, the other thing is this. There was because of the sexual revolution that was going on, uh, what was happening with a, a lot of the heterosexual priests, what happened was a lot of the heterosexual priests and seminarians were getting fed the sexual liberation theology, which was telling them that they should be sexually active. And so a lot of them concluded that they didn't have a vocation to the priesthood, mm -hmm. that instead that their vocation was married life. Since since they couldn't deny their sexual desires, right? Since that was supposedly psychologically harmful, what happened was they concluded, oh, well, I guess I'm not cut out for the priesthood after all. I'm supposed to get married because I can't deny my sexual desires. And so what you see also among the, the heterosexual priests uh, and seminarians is this uh, massive exodus um, uh, to get married mm -hmm. is what happened. So, so... Some of them were forced out by perse from persecution, but a lot of them voluntarily left um, the priesthood uh, to follow to pursue uh, married life. So, the absence of the virtue of purity and, and of chastity and, and things that we we are still not talking about enough in our church today, right? I got to yeah. ask the question. I know it's a difficult one because, and I this is what's happened in the church has not changed my love and uh, the influence that. Uh, that St. John Paul II has had in my life. And same with yeah. uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict. He's been a huge influence in my life. And I love both of them dearly. But you mentioned sort of a timeline there, John. You know, we talk about 70s, 80s, even 90s, uh, around where Pope John Paul II was a pope. And at the time, Cardinal Ratzinger had a very high place in the Vatican. How did this yeah. slip through the wickets of the good guys? Um. You know, that's a, a good question. There are a number of theories. One theory is, and I, you know, I think I tend to, I, I lean toward this one. Um, what I've read, you know, John Paul II came from uh, a Poland that was under communist rule. And um, the experience that he came from was that a lot of Catholic priests were acu falsely accused of things that they didn't do um, as, a, as a way of persecuting the church. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, a lot of people have speculated that John Paul II didn't believe a lot of these 
uh, accusations because uh, he came from a um, society in which this was the modus operandi of the enemies of the church. This is how you get the church. You um, accuse them of things. And a little piece of evidence that supports that is I do remember either hearing or reading an interview with Pope Benedict in which he said, how is this even imaginable that a priest could ever do such a thing? Hmm. In other words, John Paul II and Benedict really are from a different generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were at the, they were leading the church, it's true, but they were so much older than um, the seminarians and the priests, uh, you know, at that time, right? You know, they're, they, I mean, by, you know, by a couple of decades, right? So they came from a different generation that was not poisoned by this um, sexual liberation theology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Sigmund Freud didn't have the opportunity to um, poison John Paul's generation, right? To the extent that uh, his impact was felt in later generations. So, um, so that's what it is, I think that these crimes that were committed by these priests were, and they are, I mean, they're so horrific that even Benedict, you know, he outwardly proclaimed it was just unthinkable. How could, how could a priest, how could a person, how could you think that you're a man of God and be able to do something like that? You know, that I mean, that be, really, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, you know, it's like uh, even uh, uh, teaching children about the virtue of chastity say show them good pictures what does purity look like and what does yeah. that all look like when you then when you see something that's impure and totally off kilter you're gonna know yes. your eyes will you know because you're if you're a person of virtue and you build that in your soul anything evil or sinful that you say you're, you're just gonna you're gonna turn to flight you're just gonna turn away and run away that's and, right uh, i think that uh you know there's a lot to be said for how we raise our children and uh, especially in our, in our faith. And, and uh, you know, you hear that all the time. Oh, the kids are going to be exposed to this anyway. So just, you know, throw them to the wolves, let them see this, let them do this or whatever it is. Right. Giving up yeah. on young people is, is, is a, is just a crime to me. Um, yes. But uh, you know, there's something to be said for raising your children with period. Cause when they see something that's sinful, that's from the evil one, they're going to turn away from it because they know what's virtuous and what's right. And if you look at, Pope John Paul II, his uh, background, I mean, his, he lost his mom at a very young age, but we have heard stories yeah. of his father, uh, strong father, strong in his faith. Uh, he said that what inspired him the most was him kneeling and praying in the middle of a room, right? Just come in and here's his dad kneeling in, in prayer. Uh, we know yeah. that uh, Pope Benedict, is, he had a very strong father as well that had a great influence in his life and his spiritual life. So that's that's really interesting that um, yeah, just drawing those, those, uh, those parallels there. Um, yeah, and so we go to to Pope Benedict and his his resignation um, again, fleeing for the wolves is something that just keeps reverberating through my head. Uh, yeah. Do you think that was one of the reasons why that that he eventually he decided to to abdicate the the chair? I guess, for lack of a better word, John was what was happening in the church was he saw the filth and he just said, "I just can't, I just can't handle this." That is right. That's the. $64 million question, right? Um, uh, I, there's lots of speculation. And I don't think any, nobody's really gotten to the bottom of it. What was it? Was he forced out? Some people have speculated that maybe he was forced out or he was nudged out. Um, people talk about the St. Gallen Mafia mm -hmm. where, you know, this uh, group of um, bishops and cardinals, did they you know, were they encouraging him to uh, retire or resign, something like that? I, I don't think anybody really knows the answer to the question. And um, it, it's, uh, you know, and I mean, you also have to think that the, the hand of God was, was certainly there uh, and involved in it. And, you know, maybe for reasons that we don't fully understand, it was time for... Um, Maybe it was time for Benedict to go. And maybe, you know, maybe there's a reason why Pope Francis, maybe God has a reason for Pope Francis. 
Yeah. You know? And I think that's important too for us Catholics to realize is God is still in control of all this, no matter how dark it appears and you know how much you shake your head. And uh, you know, there's, there's still, and at the end of the day, we've got to pray for, um, for, for Joseph Ratzinger, the man, eventually he's going to have to account for everything he's done. Just like we will, we're not going to have a Pope when we go to our, our particular judgment. Uh, it's going to be us and Jesus Christ. Right. So we, we need to pray for that too. So, um, Pope Francis becomes, Pope. uh, for me, uh, uh, uh with great joy, I, I, you know, uh, again, and maybe that's, uh, the Catholic in all of us is we, we love the chair of Peter. We love the Pope, the Pope himself, the, you know, the, the lineage, the, you know, all the way from St. Peter, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, um, wow. It's just, uh, yeah. When I think about it, it gives me goosebumps. It's just such a beautiful tradition that we have that Jesus uh, allowed, um, you know, the, the, the keys of the kingdom to give to Peter and then to have his successors all the way throughout history. Um, you know, the, the innocent side of, of David here talking is, uh, really liked what I saw. I thought this is, you know, we talked about addressing the poor. He, uh, a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, all good things. There was, and, and, and a lot of good things that that Pope Francis did, even when he was a cardinal. There was some positive things, no question. Um, then, you know, as the years kind of kept going by, he kept having these questions with, uh, you know, my non-Catholic friends. Like, oh, why did the Pope say this? And why did the Pope say that? And you're like, oh, it was misquoting the media. You know, we, we, we were there for many years. It seemed like the cycle of of, uh, you know, kind of apologizing. I was like, oh, that's not what he meant. Oh, it was a misinterpretation. It's just all of a sudden, that, you know, instead of reasons, it was like, am I coming up with excuses now? And, yeah. uh, you know, where, where my red pill moment happened and, uh, people say, uh, you know, you're late to the dance, Dave, but, um, you know, like I said, I just, I wanted to, to keep believing that something that this was going to be really a great pontificate, but the, um, uh, go to October of 2019, and the Amazonian Synod. And this is where we bring in uh, a very troublesome group in our church. I hate to say it, but it's the German bishops. Uh, and we need to expose these things. This is not this is not fun for you and I to talk about, John. I mean, I'd love to be just talking about having a faithful conversation about uh, how great things are in the church. But yeah. the Amazonian Synod comes. Um, the Pachamama shows up. Um, these devotions and prayers to this, this pagan object that's uh, so clear for... Uh, for me and for so many people and the church going along with it and then having this Amazonian way um, and yeah. hearing this, uh, if you remember, John, I'm sure the, the, the missionary saying that he spent 50 years in the Amazon and they asked him how, how many people did you bring to the church? And he said, nobody. Yeah. And every, you know, everybody like a faithful Catholic, you fall off your chair and say, what is going on here? Yeah. He this was bragging. Un- he was bragging about that. And all I could say is, Lord, have mercy on this man. Like, how do you, how do you go to your particular judgment and, and you go yeah. to the Lord and say, I, I did all, I spent all this time and I did nothing. Yeah. So um, that was sort of where I started thinking, Lord, like, show me, give me wisdoms to, to discern this and to pray and to love, but we need to address some issues here. What's going on. So, so tell us maybe a little bit about that, that synod and the influence where it really seemed to kick into high gear of the German bishops. Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, the thing is my red pill moment wasn't that, uh, much earlier than your red pill moment, to be honest with you. And I started out having high hopes for Pope Francis. Um, and, um, uh, you know, Amoris Letizia was published in uh, 2016, and I didn't know what to make of it. I um, was following the Catholic media, the mainstream Catholic media, on Amoris Letizia, um, and um, this one particular website, you know, I thought, hey, I'm going to get on top of Amoris Letizia by, you know, it was, you know, the day it was published, one uh, one mainstream publication already had an analysis of Amoris Letizia. So I went ahead and read their article and it was, um, it set off no red flags or alarm bells or anything like that. And as a matter of fact, and it even addressed some of the hot button things. Well, it's, you know, raising questions about, um, communion for the divorced and remarried. You know, it, it, it brought that up, which was one of the 
major um, controversies um, that was discussed afterward uh, regarding Amoris Laetitia. But it said, but this is how it presented that material. It said, but you know, actually John Paul II already addressed this issue in Familiaris Consortio. And, you know, John Paul II um, pointed out that there were um, exceptions to the ban on communion for them. And so Pope Francis is exploring the possibility that whether or not there could be other exceptions. And they made it sound like it was kind of a technical argument that was really, uh, uh, you know, meant for canon lawyers to kind of hash out whether there could be other exceptions to communion for the divorced and remarried, something like that. So, uh, you know, and other than that, they, they made it sound like it's a very, it's a merciful pastoral uh, letter and so forth. And, you know, wonderful that uh, Pope Francis did that. That was their take on this thing. So, and this was not a, I, this was not a liberal uh, uh, publication. It was not a progressive uh, publication by any stretch of the imagination. So I thought, okay, well, here's a mainstream publication that doesn't see any red flags. It just seems to, it sees the hermeneutic of continuity hasn't been ruptured in their, in their mind. Uh, they quoted a couple of theologians and so forth uh, who were uh, mainstream, not um, heretics by any stretch of the imagination. So, so I was, you know, I felt, I felt pretty good about it. I didn't, I didn't worry about it. And the other thing is I said, you know, I'm an, I, I consider myself to be not a professional. I don't feel like I have to read every document and Everyone was saying, well, sure. gosh, Amherst Lapitia is so long. So I didn't worry about it. Yeah. But then pretty soon, pretty soon what happens is the Dubia Cardinals uh, step into this, right? And all of a sudden now there are alarm bells, right? Now we know the Dubia Cardinals are the ones that submitted these formal questions to the Pope about um, Amherst Lapitia. And they're raising some very serious questions about um, the Bible's uh, you know, biblical morality, uh, you know, is Amoris Laetitia being faithful to the biblical sexual morality um, that the church teaches, or is it um, teaching something heretical uh, by suggesting that there could be uh, situations uh, in which that uh, biblical morality is not valid, right? Are there exceptions to the absolute sexual morality that the Bible uh, gives us? Uh, the, the Dubia Cardinals were asking that question. And um, as we know, Pope Francis never answered those questions, right? Yes. So now yeah. all of a sudden there are questions that are raised. Um, but my red pill moment comes um, once the Ted McCarrick scandal breaks, because so now I'm doing a little bit of writing and um, I'm networking and some people, so some people contact me and ask me, John, would you, you know, interview Dr. Solitz about his study on uh, gay subcultures in seminary? So I do that. I, I do all of that. And I, 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 you know, his, his research is incredible. It shows that there's this clear connection between gay subcultures and, um, and sexual abuse. But the one question that his research left unanswered was, where did the gay subcultures come from? So I'm, I'm getting ready to write an article uh, for the stream. They're the ones that hired me to, um, to interview Dr. Solons. And what I discover was that it came from inside the church. It came from theology departments that were promoting, instead of promoting um, orthodox, the orthodox teachings of the church, instead they were promoting humanistic psychology and Freudian psychology. They were promoting this idea that denying your sexual desires was harmful to you, right? And so they were, and so therefore celibacy was not a good thing. Um, and the question became, well, what if you, uh, you know, what if you uh, were had homosexual desires? The conclusion that these theologians came to was that um, was that. It's wrong for homosexuals to deny their desires because that would be because it's psychologically harmful for them. So, uh, so the theology that was um, uh, circulating in the '70s and spreading like wildfire in the '70s was promoting a moral relativism that said that um, 
that you need to be free to do uh, what your desires lead you to do um, when it comes to sexual morality, right? Because um, otherwise, if you repress what's inside of you sexually, you're going to harm yourself psychologically. That was what, that was the message of many theologians. And this was a global movement. It was, you know, very big in the United States, but it took a hold of the entire Jesuit order globally. Okay. So what am I, so what, how, you know, let me connect all this up. So I was going to just write an article about this, but what happened was to my horror, I started recognizing, so I sent away for some of these old theology textbooks and I started listening to the language of them. And what I found in them was the same language that Father James Martin was using. And not only that, but it was also the same language in Am that's in Amorous Letizia. So at that point I realized, whoa, I've got too much material here. This isn't an article any longer because there's so many dots I had to, there were so many dots I had to connect that I realized that this was now, it became a book and that's where the second book came from. So the red, my red pill moment came in the fall of 2018 when I was doing this research and I realized, wow, the Dubia Cardinals were spot on. Amorous Letizia, what Amorous Letizia was really doing, Amorous Letizia was reintroducing the heretical um, theology of the 70s um, and saying this stuff is okay now. It was saying that this stuff was okay. And if you look at the Dubia Cardinals, uh, if you look at their questions that they submitted to the Pope, they cite Veritatis Splendor. Veritatis Splendor was very explicit in condemning this heretical theology. Okay. So, so the, in other words, the Dubia Cardinals had it all figured out. They said, they, but they, they did it in a nice, polite way. Instead of saying to the Pope, hey, Amorous Letizia, you know, by publishing Amorous Letizia, what you're doing is you're giving, you're giving approval to a moral theology that's already been condemned as heretical, right? Instead of just stating it, what they did, what, because, you know, because of canon law and because of tradition, they're required to submit these questions to the Pope, right? Um, and so they state it as a question, but what they're really, the message of those questions was basically this. Amorous Letizia is reintroducing heretical theology that was condemned by John Paul II and, Ver and Veritatis Splendor. That's basically what the Dubia Cardinals were saying. Okay, and Pope Francis never addressed it. That theory about Amorous Letizia is still, um, the mainstream Catholic media is still in denial about Amorous Letizia. Like I told you, I, I was reading, to get my information before I read Amorous Letizia myself, um, I was getting my information from a mainstream Catholic media source that was defending Amorous Letizia. Catholic Answers, which is a big uh, apologetics group down here in the United States, they defended Amorous Letizia, okay? Uh, First Things Magazine, as far as I know, they haven't even addressed Amorous Letizia, okay? Um, and, they, and a lot of the people that are uh, influential with uh, First Things Magazine uh, continue to defend the Pope or they avoid the topic. So... The Dubia, so the, you know, long story short is the Dubia Cardinals were ignored. Okay, the Dubia Cardinals were ignored by, um, or they were either ignored or they were reviled, right? The, the uh, militant left, you know, had nothing but, uh, you know, scorn for, uh, for the Dubia Cardinals. And by the way, one of them, and you know, to, I think there were four, there were, were there four dubia cardinals? I think there were four dubia cardinals. Two of them have already passed away. Two of them have passed okay. away, that's right, yep. Yes, mm -hmm. okay, one of them, Cardinal Carlo Cafara, was the founding president, handpicked by John Paul II to be the founding president of the John Paul Institute on Marriage and the Family. He was a world-renowned theologian, okay? And so you have this world-renowned theologian and a cardinal, a prince of the church, basically condemning Amorous Letizia and saying, this is heretical. You're reviving the heresies that John Paul condemned in um, Veritatis Splendor, right? And so that was my red pill moment. 
when I realized that Amherst Letizia was reviving all the heresies that actually um, are the root cause of the sexual abuse scandal. That's the, now that is the diabolical element of Amherst Letizia, is that when all is said and done, you know, if this thing gets a hold, and, and you know, Pope Francis is running around the world telling people, you need to teach Amherst Letizia in, my se in the seminaries around the world. Amherst Letizia, and that's the message of my book, Amherst Letizia promotes exactly the very same heretical theology that was responsible for the sexual abuse scandal. It was the theology that said there is no absolute sexual morality, that um, sexual ethics is relative and situational depending on your psychological makeup. It depends on the kind of person you are and uh, what your sexual desires are, right? Because it's harmful for you to deny your sexual desires. Amoris Letizia promotes those ideas, okay? The, the Dubia Cardinals recognized it right away. So anyway, that was my red pill moment, and that's when I realized that, Amherst, uh, that Pope Francis was taking the church in a horrible direction. And the connection to the German, you, you mentioned the German cardinals, right? The, the German bishops. So the German bishops in 2019, you, you were talking about the Amazon Synod. In December of 2019, they announced their German Synod, right? And they do a couple of things in their um, press release, okay? One, they say, we're going to have a national synod, the Germans are, the German bishops are having a, they announced their national German synod to reevaluate sexual morality, um, from a scientific perspective instead of a biblical perspective, okay? Because the Bible's no longer qualified to do that. It has uh, sexual morality, the German bishops tell us, has to be evaluated from science instead of uh, from the, uh, the Bible's point of view. And, it, and the, the German bishops said, and furthermore, Science shows us that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, that it's just as natural and normal and healthy as, as heterosexuality, okay? And then on top of that, they confirm all of the Dubia Cardinal's worst suspicions by saying, and furthermore, all of our conclusions are justified by Amoris Letizia. That they say explicitly in their press release that Amorous Letizia um, justifies everything that they're doing in their synod. Okay, so basically what happens as soon as, as, soon as that happens, as soon as the Germans announce their synod, um, they basically confirm all of the Dubia Cardinals' worst suspicions. They're, they're saying, yeah, that's really what it, you guys, yeah, you, you Dubia Cardinals were exactly right. That's exactly what Amorous Letizia was all about. It was about redefining sexual morality uh, from a scientific point of view and normalizing homosexuality. So, so we've got a we've got now we're real now the trouble is now we've got in addition to the Germans now we've got a global synod. Okay, and the worry is it's a very live fear now that that the that the real agenda that what's really going on with the global synod now is that Pope Francis is going to rubber stamp the German Synod and their, their conclusions to redefine sexual morality, to completely change the, church, the church's teaching on homosexuality is going to be the conclusion of the global Synod and it's going to be imposed on all of us. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the great fear. There's a lot of evidence that that's exactly what's happening right now. Hoping to have an opportunity to participate in this. Uh... The, this, these hearing sessions. But what I'm seeing, John, um, from my perspective, is that uh, you talked earlier about feelings, you know, this, this sort of, uh, yeah, this uh, the psychology, I guess, of, you know, the 70s, the 80s, of what, what your, your feelings are, um, they, they take precedent over facts. And yeah. what is the, what is the church teachings on something that never changes? It's the eternal truth. Right. Um, what I'm seeing from and it concerns me. And I think that, you know, we need, we need the good Catholics, the ones that live in a state of grace to make sure that it doesn't go off the rails is that we're inviting people to share their feelings on the church. And if you yeah. don't live in a state of grace, if you don't believe that the Eucharist 
is truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, which we're finding not just the people that aren't going to church anymore, John, but the people right. that are actually coming every Sunday to mass, the few people that do show up. You know, we're seeing numbers as high as 70, maybe even higher. 70% of our Catholics don't even believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, yet they go and receive it every Sunday. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we're compounding, um, you know, the, the bankruptcy of the soul. Uh, and, yeah. and so when we're talking about inviting people from the peripheries, from hearing from the poor, from the marginalized, uh, I get a little bit concerned by that because, Yes, there are some people that maybe feel that their voices are not heard, but I also feel, and I'm talking about feelings now, <laughs> but this is my, my observation, I should say. My observation is not a feeling, it's just an observation, is that yeah. um, people put themselves in isolation from the church. They'll look at a, yeah. at a, at a moral teaching and say, I will, I'm isolating myself until the church changes their teaching, and I ain't going yeah. back until that happens, right? That's right. The absence of teaching the, these moral absolutes, these bedrock foundational marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, and, and I acknowledge that celibacy is a practice in the church that not every, you know, we, we see, you know, Ukrainian Catholic priests, for example, in Canada, some of them are married. Um, yeah. But uh, that's not to diminish the discipline and how important it is and what a gift it is either, right? Yeah. Um, that's my concern for this, John, is that we're going to go down the route of a bunch of people's personal feelings yeah, and change something that um, doesn't need to be, well, shouldn't be changed at all. And you think of yeah. people on the, they say on the peripheries, I'm like, well, I'd like to ask, you know, a lot of traditional Catholics, how they feel about being on the peripheries of the church. Now uh, yes. that modus proprio, that, that got answered. Those dubias got answered very quickly. And yes, they did. In the church, John, and that's, and we're seeing that with in a lot of different issues right now in the church. And that's what concerns me is that if you ignore something and yes. you just let it fester and you don't address it, things are going to get ugly pretty fast. And we're seeing that just in society today. We were talking a little bit offline about our, as we record this, our Canadian truckers that are doing this uh, amazing freedom convoy. If you keep yeah. getting ignored by, by government and, um, or, or they start to, to gaslight you by calling you names. Um, it's not going to end well for anybody. And the way that this has been handled, you know, uh, by, by our church leadership here, some of these, a lot of these concerns are just not being properly addressed, John. Is that, uh, yeah. my barking up the right tree there? I don't know. Oh, I mean, I, I agree with you. I, um, and I agree that, um, you know, this idea that we need to listen to, uh, the marginalized and so forth is. Uh, that's the argument that we need to be more merciful, right? That that it's merciful for us to listen to these people and to include them and so forth and so on. Well, I think what I think the the proper response is, I would say, is that the church doesn't need to be taught how to be merciful. Uh, merciful is uh, built in the the whole. Um, spirit of the church is mercy. And um, it's, it's, you know, it's part of the essence of what it is to be, to be Catholic. Um, and that's what the sacrament of reconciliation is all about. Um, there are ways of receiving mercy in the church. There's a, there, for people who are marginalized, there are great ways uh, to come out of the margins. And that is uh, by visiting the confessional. You know, yes. Um, and really, to try to do it any other way is not merciful. It's not merciful to 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 lie to people and say that that you're going to get mercy um, some other that there's going to be some other way to do it. You know, if really these other ways really just lead to eternal damnation. That's eternal damn leading people into hell is not merciful. So. Um, the church doesn't need to be taught how to be merciful. And what uh, is being this propaganda that we're being fed is really a false mercy. Some of the points that are being made is that we're, we need to go meet people where they're at. I agree hundred percent with that. But if you look in the gospel and Jesus never, he always met them where they were at the center, but he always took them out of where they were at too. Cause he, he loves us so much. That's he doesn't right. want us to stay in our sin. 
And uh, I think we're missing yeah. the back part of that right now, our church. We're missing the back part of, yeah, we're going to go meet people where they're at, but we're just, we can't just leave them there. You know, we have yes. to. And if we're talking about the Holy Spirit guiding us, absolutely. The Holy Spirit will, he, you know, he works in mysterious ways too, that sometimes we don't see, but in order for us to be open to graces, we need to be in a state of grace. You know, we need to, we need to be going to confession, receiving the Eucharist worthily and getting our mortal and our venial sins forgiven. And not seeing that, John, I think, you know, we're definitely, um, I think we're, we're singing or singing from the same hymn book here, but it's a, it's a concern. Yeah. I think it's important that we connect the dots, John. And I think that's why your work is important and your blog is important because, uh, um, you know, in charity, we need to call people out when there's, there's this profound error that we're seeing in front of us. And yes. it is up to us not to just sit back and say, Oh, you know, I don't know. This, this looks like a little scary. Maybe I'll let some other people in my parish handle this or do this. You need to get on the phone and say, I can help. I can do things in here. And then, you know, discern and, and stay in a state of grace yourself and then be an influence in the church. That's what, that's what Christ wants for us, right? He wants us to, he wants us to guide others too. And he doesn't, uh, in, in, in scripture, we talk about that too. We see that the wolf in sheep's clothing. And we know at the end of the days, there's going to be those, those false prophets and preachers and we're, we're seeing them right in our midst right now in our yeah. church. So, yeah. yes. And, yeah. I think the one thing we need to do a practical, if I, you know, um, one practical thing I, I hope uh, your listeners will consider doing, and, and that is writing to their Bishop and, and saying, and you know, your, your national conference of bishops, uh, and saying that in no way um, are the um, um, is the agenda of the German Synod acceptable uh, for the global Synod. That anything of that sort is is heresy and apostasy and is completely out of bounds. And anything that uh, presumes to speak for us. Uh, cannot, uh, can, can only condemn, it, you know, if, if the Synod speaks for us, then it must condemn the German Synod. And, you know, we need our bishops to stand up and, and say that, because there's a re very real danger that the German, uh, that the German agenda to uh, normalize uh, mortal sin like homosexuality is going to become the agenda uh, is going to get rubber stamped by this uh, global synod. And so we need our bishops to condemn the Germans and make it clear that we will not accept any, um, uh, we will not accept the German uh, synod uh, for our church. You know, that that's some kind of statement has to be made like that very clearly. And I think it's important for us to, to encourage our leaders to do that too. You know, sometimes it, they might feel like they're, they're in isolation too, or they feel like there's a, there's a lot of powers coming down on them and they don't know how to necessarily handle that. The wolves, if, if we may say, so um, yeah, pray for our well, bishops. You guys have pray your handful in Canada. <laughs> Tell us about I mean, it. You know, Absolutely. I mean, I've, just, I've been reading all about this bill C4 at, uh, yeah. you know, in Canada. And, you know, the thing is, you know, I was reading it over and you wonder, whether you can even um, whether you're even allowed to teach Christianity any longer, because um, it's saying if you you know any kind of anything that discourages uh, uh, homosexual behavior uh, is considered conversion therapy, and you can go to jail for five years for that. Well, how are you supposed to teach? What do you what are you supposed to teach on at Sunday school? You know. That's exactly what's happening that, right now. And, and John, I'll tell you, yeah. that's, see, when I talked to you about before, this is going to be a fast conversation because you're, uh, this has been a great conversation and it, and time flies. We're going to have to just, we have to have a part two sometime soon and we actually tackle that separately because it's, okay. it's another long, uh, not long, yeah. but it's something that we want to get into depth on. And I think that there is a concern that Bill C4 and we have pretty much the unanimous um, uh, votes from our, from our MPs in parliament uh, virtually no opposition in fairness to our bishops in Canada. They did send a, a brief letter kind of denouncing the original bill, which I believe was called C6 back, uh, in late 2020, but really not much since. 
and uh, we see that uh, I think there was a, there's a website here, I believe it's called the Liberty Coalition Canada, and it had four thousand pastors sign a bill saying that this was we're against this bill. I hate to say it, but I'll bet you there wasn't very many Catholic priests in there, if they, if any at all, and uh, that's something that's that's pretty scary. Um, and I think that that's, again, I think that we need to dedicate some, some more time to that John, you have an open invitation to come on this podcast anytime. I, I really appreciate your time. Let's, let's get caught up on, on this and maybe some other issues too. I think it's important that, like I said, that we're watchmen, we're, we're, we're bringing the truth to light. We need to expose this. It's not fun to talk about the church. It's not, Yeah. but, uh, yeah. we need to, to bring this light and we need to ask other people. I think even, uh, cause I, I, I keep hearing this from non-Catholics. The good people of goodwill. Some of them are Protestants, you know, good belong to Christian denominations. Others are just, they really don't, they're not Christians at all, but they're people of goodwill that are seeking the truth. They're seeking leadership. And I just keep yes. hearing it over and over again. What is going on in the Catholic church? And it even ties into this whole thing with the virus. They said, you know, would we even need a convoy that's going across Canada? Would we even be worried about mandates if the Catholic church just said, Hey, listen, Let's stand up for the freedom of conscience. That's for everybody, not just for Catholics, but for everybody. It would be all over. This would be over tomorrow, but we're not doing it. So we got to ask the questions why that's going to yeah. be on a conversation with you very soon, John. How can people okay. get a hold of you, John? I thank you so much for, for your time and your insights here. You got a great website. Let's uh, go through it again. And, and uh, how do people get a hold of some of your books to you? Okay, well, um, my books, you can find them online uh, on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Actually, any online outlet that sells uh, books, I'm, I'm at most, uh, most places like that. Um, as you said, I blog at uh, newwalden.org. And uh, from time to time, I will uh, contribute an essay over at uh, stream.org as well. So that's, sounds great, John. Well, thank you so much for your time. Let's get you on again here soon. And uh, God bless you and, and your work. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me on your show. Big thanks again to John Gravino for joining us in this episode of the podcast. Again, his website, newwalden.org. You can find out more information about his blog and his books. Also follow John on social media and I'll have those links on the show notes. And uh, not always easy talking about these things. It's really not. But we know that the Prince of Darkness is always trying to undermine Christ and the Catholic Church and um, encourage all Catholics and all people of goodwill to continue to pray, pray for the truth to come to light. And um, the truth is Jesus Christ on the cross. That should be enough for us. And that is the message that we need to to share with the world. And speaking of freedom convoys, I love freedom convoys, and it doesn't matter if they're in Canada or other parts of the world. I hope they come to your country, too, if you're from outside of Canada. Keep praying for us on this as well. But the, the greatest freedom convoy we can do in our lives is to go to confession. You could be by yourself, and that's really good to go into confession on your own. If you got a family, put them in the van, call it a convoy, and go to that confessional. And that's the only way that we can receive the grace that Jesus wants to give us so that we can walk in right relationship with him at all times. So we've got to go to confession at least three times every year, every Advent, every Lent, and any time you're in a state of mortal sin, don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless. We'll chat with you very soon.